This is The Guardian. I should say before we start, today's episode contains some swearing. I'm Grace Dent and this is Comfort Eating from The Guardian. A podcast where we pay homage to the lesser celebrated foods in life. Because even as a restaurant critic, I believe the food that matters most is often that snack you cobble together when you're curled up on the sofa. Each week, I ask my guest to lift the lid on what comfort foods have seen them through their lives. Because you can tell a lot about a person from what they eat behind closed doors. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, friends. How are you doing? Welcome to Comfort Eating. Just having a little pre-interview snack. I've got some large peeled king prawns. And I'm just dipping them in very, very nice piccalilli. Prawns and piccalilli. It is a thing. Absolutely delicious. I've got quite a lot of piccalilli under my fingernails now, though. Today, I am speaking with the writer Marion Keys. Look, there's no two ways about this. Marion is a phenomenon. She's an Irish national treasure. She is the multi-million copy best-selling author of some of the most loved novels of the past 30 years. Her books are hilariously written, but they don't shy away from tougher subjects such as addiction, bereavement and infidelity. I know that her own story weaves from addiction to recovery and she has been very public about her struggles with depression and how, as she says, she was saved by cake. She's going to be here any minute. I have had a good tidy up, I'm not going to lie. She's going to be in my house today and I'm hoping for a really good chat. Is it wrong to eat piccalilli with a spoon? I don't want to be right. Marianne Keys. Grace Dent. Welcome to Comfort Eating. Thank you for having me. I've been researching thoroughly about you before you got here. God love you, Grace. And I put it to you that you have never had a boiled egg. I've never had a boiled egg. I mean... That blows my mind. You have said, on record, eggs are weird and repulsive. I don't know why I'm laughing. It just seems so ludicrous. 
what have eggs done to you? I don't know. But I do think they're weird and repulsive. They're like some peculiar little alien life form. Um, They horrify me. The fact that people eat them horrifies me. The consistency, I mean, the double revolting consistency, both the white and the yolk. Oh, I mean, like, because I used to bake a lot. But when I used to break the eggs into the bowl, even looking at it gave me the shudders. This is the part of the show where I find out what it is that you eat when the curtains are drawn and you are home alone. What have you brought me? There are two bowls mm. on the table. Yes. Pass me one over. Okay. This is, and um, I have no idea what is inside this. Okay. I cannot guess. I have no clues. Really? Okay. I am, oh, I'm taking the lid. Okay. Off the, I'm looking at something with yogurt. There's berries. Yogurt and berries and... Well, it's granola. It's fancy granola. You know those fancy granolas that are really just loads of broken biscuits? Yes. You know, put in a bag and kind of market it as health. Oh, no. Oh, yes. Oh, Mm. yes. I can... prep time. It's tiny. You open the bag of broken biscuits, throw huge amounts of it into the bowl... Open your pot of Greek yogurt, the fullest fat possible. Throw some raspberries and blueberries under the tap and rinse them briefly and then throw them in so you have it all. Um, sorry, I'm in ecstasy. I'm so glad. When do you eat this? What, have you got a special time that you have this? My husband goes away to climb mountains regularly. Mm. And when he's gone, mm. I go feral. Like, <laughs> like yeah. no, no, you think I'm joking. Like, yeah. I don't, I don't cook. Mm. It's all I eat, really. I don't wash myself. I don't, I don't get yeah. dressed. I can go for days like this. This would really appall people. Sometimes I don't even wash the bowl. I will use it. <laughs> because, because I'm thinking, oh, for the love of Christ, I don't actually want to put on the dishwasher. It's too much work having to find the tablet. Yeah. I heard that called recently. Goblin mode. Goblin, G-O-B-L-I-N? Yeah, like you've gone into goblin mode. Mm. Mm. And goblin being the kind of absolute opposite of how a woman should be, Mm. you know? Mm. You look on Mm. social media Mm. and it's women telling you their routines and their Mm. lists and Mm. all the things they do. But I think we do as women, we have these secret feral Mm. goblin Mm. times where... Mm. Not washing. And it's the greatest treat, isn't yes, it? Yes, to not, not wash. have a shower. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, it's like the little gift to yourself on a day. It's the little secret you hold to yourself. Just letting your armpit hair grow in. Yeah, yes. And yes. like just looking after about six days, looking and going, mm. oh, oh, well that, done. that's mm. what it looks like. Mm. When asked... What the best thing your mother ever taught you was, you have said, to be a good storyteller. How important was storytelling when you were growing up? It was vital. Mm. Like it was, it was so vital that I didn't even notice it. It was so part of who she is and who our family is. It was, it was like the air we breathed. Um, 
She's a really, really, really funny, entertaining person. She loves drama. Like she loves, I mean, like the worst things make the funniest stories. Mm. And she's just a natural at it, at kind of pacing yeah. and, yeah. you know, feeding out the sorrowful stuff. And then suddenly subverting it all with a really irreverent line. So when you were born in 1963 in Limerick in the Republic of Ireland and your early years spent in Cork and you're the eldest of five children. So I'm imagining that's when storytelling came around. It's sitting round the table. Yeah. Talking. What was family life like? God, I mean, it was very... I mean, I think of my childhood, like the 60s in Ireland, as in black and white. Yeah. Both of my parents, like my mother came from remote rural stuff, mm. you know, like it was literally a three-roomed cottage mm. with with a well and no electricity. And my dad came from inner city of Limerick. Um, they moved into a semi-D in a new kind of suburb of Cork where everybody was kind of... They were all young families. Mm. Like we didn't have telly. I don't know when it started, but like we didn't have a telly. And then when we did get it, like it didn't start until like after six in the evening. And, you know, the influence of the church was everywhere. Like the church was kind of our social life and there wasn't much money and there was feck all to do. Like on a Sunday afternoon as an outing, we used to drive out to Cork Airport when dad eventually got a car. We used to drive out to Cork Airport where three flights took off from a week and never on a Sunday. And we'd stand and we'd look out at the empty runway and marvel for some time. And then we'd all get back in the Morris Minor and go home again. And you are laughing. But this is true. And like, I'm laughing because I recognise... The tedium of a Sunday. Yes. You know? Yeah, when there's nothing. Nothing. When there's nothing, there's no telly. It just felt like this airless, very oppressed time, like it was. Yes. You know, the late 60s in, in Ireland, it was not a fun time. You know, from the formation of the state, like the church ran everything. You know, anything that was remotely fun. It functioned like a theocracy. When you were all at home, mealtimes, who was cooking? My poor mother. Now, bear in mind, my mother is a very bright woman. Mm. She's sparky. Yeah. She's she's smart. She's got huge emotional intelligence. She understands people immediately. And she was sort of repackaged into this meek, well-behaved God-fearing Catholic wife and she had to give up her job when she got married like which is horrendous and she and I say this with no judgment she didn't know how to cook because she had been brought up in a home where the cooking literally happened on an open fire like it was you know it was those black hangy things and then a a giant black pot would hang from them over the flames and everything would be boiled in it at once. You know, like potatoes, cabbage, ham, whatever. Like it would all be in there. So what did you eat? This is our first attempt at using yeah. a hob. Yeah, yeah. Chops. I remember chops. Mm. Do chops still exist? I think they maybe call them something different yeah. now. Yes, they've know? been re-branded. Re, uh, there was a yeah. lot of chops in the 70s, I yeah. remember. Yeah, chops mashed potato 
and tinned peas is like literally what I remember. Yeah. Like on a Friday, we would have chips yeah. because on a Friday you couldn't have um, meat. Was that the things the that you Friday. enjoyed? Or oh was my it, God, it? I love the chips. Yeah. Yeah. No, I hated all the other stuff. Like, like hated it. Aside from chips, were there other little treats? There weren't really treats as such, but, you know, there wasn't like a, a box in the house with like biscuits or anything like that in it. But if, say if my parents were off to meet other parents, yeah. you know, for the day, for the afternoon, for the Sunday afternoon that we weren't driving out to the airport, we'd go to a nearby seaside called Garrettstown. And so the parents would go off into the pub for coffee or something like that because they weren't drinkers. And the kids would be given a bag of, I'm really sorry about this, the best crisps in the world. Tato. And a bottle of Coke in one of those old glass bottles. And I will, you know, I would take a bullet for the Tato. You know, like my husband, who is English but lives in Ireland, loves everything about about Ireland, except he is adamant that walkers are the best crisps. They're absolutely not. This is nonsense. This is absolute. It's errant codswallop. I didn't realise until I started this podcast how passionate Irish people are about Tato. Do you know we even have a theme park called Tato Park? (laughs) Like, genuinely, we do. You have described yourself as a recovering Catholic. Yes, or a collapsed Catholic. Yeah. How big a role did Catholicism play in your early life? I mean, it was huge. Like, it was everywhere. I, you know, it's really hard for people to understand the power mm. that the Catholic Church had and, and is still desperately trying to hang on to in Ireland. Like, even now, 92% of our schools are, are run by the Catholic Church. Mm. Um mass was our social life I mean it was a thrill to go to confession on a Saturday you know because it was something to do and um, I'm so glad you said that because my nana went to confession and she carried on going to confession all the way through her life when she had nothing to to confess confess. nothing it's awful nothing and I and and we always had a theory it was a night out you know, yes. or a day out. Yes, you know, or human was... contact or like a bit of drama. Yeah. Um, what did you confess when you went in? Did you have I anything mean, interesting? To... No, no, because everybody made up sins. Like you had to have three sins. You know, you pinched your brother. You had an unkind thought about somebody or other. And you burnt down a hotel in the city centre. No, <laughs> I mean, like that would have been fun. Um, <laughs> because it was Codswallop, you know, we were kids. And like... You know, the first communion was presented as the most thrilling thing that could happen in a young person's life. That's your day of being a Kardashian, though, isn't it? Yes, the white dress, the the drama, the money. The attention. The attention, the photos. You know, but even early on, I had me doubts, you know, because we were sent off to to make our first confessions. And when we came back to the class, the teacher said something like, you must all feel so light, girls. You must all feel so joyous and 
I just light. You just want want to float away. And I was thinking, I don't feel light. I don't feel anything. It's it's. Yeah. This isn't. This is this is bullshit. But I didn't know that word then. You've you've said in the past that you know you were an an anxious mm. child. How did that manifest itself? Well, I mean, I was afraid of everything, and. I mean, there was plenty to be afraid of. Mm. The schools were so... They were fairly handy with the slaps. Even saying that turns my stomach. Mm. I was terrified of being late, which actually still hasn't left me. I was just terrified of being in the wrong. What were you like if there was like a children's party in the diary? Did you look forward to it? I did look forward to it. But then when I got there, I always felt wrong. Like, you know, any, almost all addicts or alcoholics that I know have talked about that feeling of of kind of being an outsider Mm. or wrong. Um, And I always felt like I was watching other people to figure out how they were normal, how they just functioned and were just in the moment playing or I was afraid nobody would like me or want to play with me. Um... How did you cope with anxiety? I mean, kind of three things. Like the first really helpful thing was reading. Like when I found, when I read my first Enid Blyton book, like it was huge for Which me. Which one? It was the twins at St. Clair's. It was yeah. the second St. Clair's book. And it was just the most beautiful thing because there was another world that I could escape into. You know, where I wasn't there, where my circumstances weren't there. Then the second thing that I discovered very young, and I'm going to tell you about it, was sugar. Um, we had had yeah. seven up in the house. I can't remember what the occasion was. And it made me feel so lovely mm. that I woke up the following morning really early and went downstairs and I tried to make it myself because it was all gone. Oh. So I had water and I put sugar in the water because I thought the sugar... The little grains of sugar were like bubbles, yeah. you know, and then it tasted nothing like it. To counteract the anxiety. Yeah. You, the sh- you tried to give yourself a sugar high to yeah. kind of almost to, to switch, switch your brain balance that's a little. It, to normal me. Yeah, exactly. To recalibrate yeah. me. Yeah, because obviously the sugar, when I'd had it the day before, had generated dopamine. Yes. And... And I liked that feeling. Yeah. You know, it was, it's a painkiller. Like it was self-medication. Yeah. That's what I was looking for. And the yeah. third thing was, and this, you know, stopped fairly young, but I used to pray, you know, because I was so afraid, you know, just I just prayed that I would be okay. Yeah. Like I had found alcohol when I was 14 and instantly it was the most passionate attachment you know like yeah. but no sincerely like no, I, felt, I believe you yeah I this believe you. will help me this will help me be normal I thought it made me feel how other people feel the rest of the time and it kind of made me feel I can get through life now mm. um but like I didn't drink a lot then because I mean I was 14 and there was no money and that but I always whenever I did get the chance drank for oblivion I just never understood the thing of kind of like two glasses of wine with your dinner. I still don't. (music) 
1986, after studying law in Dublin, he moved to London. He's spoken of this time as going from black and white into technicolour. Yeah. What was so special about London in the 80s? Got so much, like the more time has passed, the more I realise London in the 80s was amazing. I mean, there was so much going on. Like, I mean, there was, like I lived in a squat, Mm. which was for me thrilling. Where was it? It was in Hackney. It was on the 21st floor of a tower block in Hackney. I was answerable to no one because I'd been living at home with my parents. Like, nobody knew me. I mean, that's the thing about Ireland as well. It's, you know, there were only three and a half million people then. Still quite a lot. But like, it only felt like 13, you know, and like that that there were doppelgangers of everyone everywhere. Like, literally, it was impossible to transgress in any way. Somebody would see you. Like, somebody would know. I mean, it must have been crazy to just arrive mm, here in 86 London. And yeah, like, I mean, you must have been seeing people from all over yes. the world and looking yeah. different. And yeah, I mean, so you were going out and yeah, having and Ireland was it was in the middle of a, a kind of a fairly a, a really brutal recession, whereas London was awash with money. You know, something had happened in the city or it happened in 1987, I think, the Big Bang. And I have no idea what that really means. Mm. But it just meant that people were flinging money around. And there was just a sense of it was like a party town. Yeah. That's what it was. And yeah. I mean, so much was happening in terms of music and clubs and bands. And, you know, like artistically, there was a lot going on and there were jobs. Did you love partying? I loved drinking. Which is yeah. different, I suppose. So not the sweeping into the room and no. not the holding court and not the dressing up to the nines. Oh, and... no, I did like the dressing up. I did, I did. I loved clothes. Yeah. Yeah, Kensington Market. Oh, God, yeah. Hyper, hyper. You know, all those amazing places. When did you know that you'd gone too far? I didn't. Uh, I didn't. Like, I mean, that's the whole thing about any addiction was the denial got bigger. Did you suspect? No. So you weren't having those long Sunday Sundays of the darkened soul when you're like in a fetal position? No, I did. I did. I did. But I didn't think it was because of the alcohol. I honestly thought that the alcohol was my only friend. I'm completely serious. I know you hear about denial and people say it. It's real. You know, I thought, my God, I'm so depressed. I mean, you've been sober now for 28 years yeah your parents checked you into rehab yeah I mean after a suicide attempt yeah it was pretty lame I have to be honest Um, but still it was enough to kind of it was enough to blow the gig wide open you know I I basically outed myself yes and uh yes so yeah so i went to rehab in ireland and quite sincerely i thought i was going because it would be handy i thought i'll have six weeks in there so i won't spend any money i will get yeah. really healthy you know because like it'd be all you know yoga 
and and then they'll have a gym, of course, and yeah. they'll have smoothies. I don't know, were smoothies even invented then? Maybe they weren't. But like, just like going to Champneys or something like yes. that, a lovely retreat. Yeah. You yeah. get there, they maybe give you a little... Yeah, a little bit of a rest. yoga mat and, uh, yeah. and what happened. And then I also thought, you know, obviously I, I'm not an alcoholic, but everybody who is telling me that I am will see that I've gone to rehab and yeah. then they'll be my friends again. And uh, And then while I was there, didn't take long for me to realize actually I really do need to be here yeah you've said in the past that it was one of the happiest times of my life yeah why was it happy it's really hard to describe there was something about the bond with the other people yeah it was the last place I would have wished for myself and they wouldn't have wished for themselves either we took care of each other in our cluelessness. What's the food like in rehab? You get so much of it. Like, yeah. I mean, like you get so much. Is it lovely, delicious, stodgy things? It was huge amounts of stodge. Yeah, it was huge, huge. We got given so much because most of us had stopped eating. And then every day somebody would go, you know, the, the kind of the people who were further along in the process would be allowed to go to the local shop. Two people would go. And like the orders for chocolate and sweets that we'd all be, like we were all, yeah. I suppose, craving sugar, sugar and also the ballast of carbs. I mean, God, I mean, I still love carbs. I think carbs are great for the nerves. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. Before rehab, you'd begun to write short stories. When you were out, you sent these to a publishing house. And in 1995, your first book, Watermelon, was published. You've said that you hadn't really been interested in writing previously. Why did you start? I think, I mean, I do think the starting was very important it was September 1993 and I had just turn, turned 30. And at this stage, this is four months before I finally stopped. And I was so dark. And I felt like my life was like this. It was just getting smaller and smaller and smaller. It was like I was standing on a tiny island that was shrinking. I was barely hanging on to a job. 
I'd stopped eating and I wanted to die. I couldn't see any path forward. And this afternoon I was at home and I read something in a magazine, a short story. And it was funny and it was sort of... But it never occurred to me that somebody like me could write. You know, I thought you had to be posh and... You know, yeah. that your uncle had to own a publishing house. And yeah. do you know, yeah. I thought it was for the elite and not for the likes of me. But something in that story said, you could write something like that. And I sincerely think that it was something deep in d- down inside me that said, look at, you know, we're in very dangerous territory here. And if you don't find something to stay alive for, this is all going to be over very quickly. And, you know, I am so lucky, you know, even sitting here telling you this, my God, like it was such a pivotal time. It was such a crossroads, you know, and I didn't turn from it like I I walked forward. You met the man that you now lovingly refer to as himself, Tony, before rehab. Yeah. But it wasn't until after your time there that you began dating. And you'd go on to get engaged after just three months. I know. Tell me about the early days of you two together. It was very sweet. Like, it was very innocent. It was very retro, you know, because um, I had known him beforehand and I just thought he was too nice. I didn't get it. Like, I was... I just didn't understand kindness. So he is a kind person, but does he win you over with food as well? Yes. He used to take me to... Highgate, I think it was. Yeah, he was, he took me on dates. Yeah. You know, like dates. Proper dates. Proper dates, where, where like they... he'd pick me up in his car. Yeah. Yeah, and bring me there and give me food and yeah. pay for it and drive me home. Like, like a human being. Yes. Like people are supposed was, to do. Yeah. He would say to you, I'm going to pick you up at this time. And he'd be there at this time. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I was like, yeah. where's the catch? You know. What food did you eat on these dates? Desserts, really. I mean. Can he cook? He can. Wait till I tell you. Yeah. He's a very obedient man, you know, and he is absolutely fantastic at following instructions because he's patient. Do you know, yeah. like he can fix things because he reads the instructions. And then during lockdown, we started cooking and then I had to stop because I was I had too much work and I didn't have room in my head. But secretly, he goes, wait you here, buys a Nottolenghi book, buys the spices that have to come from Saturn, you know, and they take like a year and a half to arrive. And by carefully, by carefully following, quote, Yotam's instructions, it's yeah. Yotam now. Yeah. Yeah. He does Ottolenghi stuff and he is honest to God fantastic and I'm very very worried about telling you this because everyone's going to hate me you know oh aren't you great with your husband who can cook out a lengi for you <laughs> but like you know we all needed something to get us through lockdown no I think it says a lot about a person that can follow one of Yotam's recipes because we all want the food but when you see the stages You realise that you bought the book mainly to look at the picture. So it says a lot about him. Yeah. That that he he follows it. Yes. He's methodical. 
he's patient and now he's reached the stage where he is um what's the word freestyling slightly see that's terrifying it is when he substitutes the dill because i hate dill um for coriander you know that sort yeah. of thing that's daring daring stuff that's high wire stuff isn't it what's his main go-to recipe he does this business with with them um, Beetroot, Hasselback beetroot Oof. with lime, yes. lime butter and a lime salsa. I've got so much lick in my mouth and talking about it. Um, oh my God. Hasselback beetroot, mm. so the very thin yes. slice He's there. and then he roasts them. Yes, for like weeks, <laughs> literal weeks. And then like making, because there's all kinds of, there's the, the lime butter, the lime salsa, the lime this and the that. You know, there's all kinds of limey stuff mm. and they all have to be done as well. So he does that. But when you first got together, what was he cooking then? Broccoli, salmon and some sort of potato. You know, right. I, I mean, I was really impressed with that because the idea of getting more than two things together ready for the same time is just, it's beyond me. If if I can feck everything into a pot, I'm grand. But the idea of two things at the same time, oh no, you know, the, the stress is too much. You've spoken about having depression in your mid-40s. You became ill, battling constant suicidal urges and you said of this time it was as if I was locked in a car boot with a Rottweiler yeah I was you know like depression is kind of always like it didn't feel like depression it felt like acute fear Mm. depression has always kind of presented as a a sort of a flatness or a sadness it wasn't I was so scared and it wasn't anxiety because I like I, I know anxiety it was like a primal like a terrible fear how do you get through this bit? I used to bake. It's something about the whole process of like sieving flour, you know, weighing things, putting things into cupcake cases. Did you eat it? Yeah. Well, initially, yeah. Because I love to bake, but then it's sitting about and then mm. I eat it. Yeah. But did you have to give it away? Yeah, I used to give it to the neighbours and initially they were thrilled. <laughs> And then after I'd given the entire road type 2 diabetes, I wasn't so popular, so I had to stop. Yeah, I mean, but yeah, I did. I ate a lot of it as well because you're doing small tasks that need some focus, but they're not so onerous that you just think, ah, fuck it, and, and like mm. walk away. Meditative. It is meditative. And, um, and then subsequently, like kind of later on, I started upcycling furniture. I mean, mostly just painting it, but I loved it. Are you still baking? No. Why not? Wait till I tell you. No, because after I got better, people would ask me to make cakes because I had been good at it. But if I tried, it reminded me of the horror of how I felt then. The utter fucking horror. And I couldn't. Like, I mean, I joke and I say I get PTSD if I even see a sieve now. But it does feel a bit like that. Like I gave away all my stuff. Like I gave away all my tins, all my, you know, my, you know, that machine. The twirling machine. Got, uh, like, uh, what, uh, the, a um, cake the, thing. The, um, Magimix the or ma- 
Yeah. You gave away your Magimix. I gave it to my sister, yeah. This must have been a magical time for your friends when suddenly you were giving away all this incredible... And I had all these blocks of like turquoise blue um, sugar paste icing. For the sea, because you were making sea. Yes, yes, yes. Like I had so much stuff. But honestly, it, it saved my life. Like, and I don't mean that in a quippy way. It literally saved my life many times. Your writing is loved for its ability to weave humour into the most crushing of emotional tales. And it touches on themes that are big, addiction, infidelity, bereavement. What do you think it is about your books that touches the hearts of so many people? I mean, I think nobody can get through life without something awful happening to us. Mm. Um, The thing that we always hoped would only happen to other people sooner or later happens to us. And I find that so shocking still when it happens to me. Um, But I think I can only write books about something bad happening. Mm -hmm. But I try to take care of my characters through it. And I suppose maybe the happy endings, like I am adamant, like that in every life, the hell we were in, the pain abates, at least for a while. And it's at that point that I'll end the book, you know, because I think there's no such thing as a happy ending where like you continue being happy because life keeps happening to all of us. But I suppose I like to end on a point where like there's hope that no matter how terrible it is now, Things will change and it's always, I suppose, things change in ways that for good or for bad, we can't anticipate. So for about the last 25 years, you've lived with your husband, Tony, in the coastal Dublin town of Dunleary. What do you like to do with your time? Watch telly. I know, isn't that really kind of disappointing? No, Um, no, it's not. It's lovely and it's real. (laughs) I love, 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 love telly. And I, you know, I'm still, I know it mightn't be kind of so fashionable now. Like anything, anyone being murdered in a cold country, if there's now a bit of ice and snow thrown in, you know, I could not be happier. Um, I live very near two of my brothers my mother and, and, and another sister is only 20 minutes away and nieces and nephews. Like I see a lot of them. Um, I've got friends. Sometimes we go to eat things. Sometimes we go for walks. What's like, a normal night in just having dinner together? If you're yeah. just having picky stuff in front of the telly, what's what do you eat? Well, I mean, it's always like a very happy time of the year is when the... Um, the Christmas party snacks arrive in Marks and Spencer's. Um, <laughs> oh God, yeah, off he goes yeah. and he comes back with a load of them. And uh, yeah. The stuff that everything takes 12 minutes it's on 180. Exactly, 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 yeah. That's I mean, your happy time. Yeah, and I mean, it usually coincides with Strictly Come Dancing being on. So we'd be having the tray of the, you know, the cocktail sausages and the mini hamburgers and the whole thing there. And the, the halloumi bites. You take telly seriously. You've got the trays, you've got snacks. Oh, God, yes. You know, honestly, every day, like at half six, 
something lifts or shifts in me, a kind of a, oh, yeah. it's like my work is done and now I can lie on the couch and watch things. You've said you have a rule. You always write happy ending. And you've said that it's because you can't depend on real life to do it for you. But when are you actually the happiest? At half past six lying on the couch. Yeah. Like genuinely. It's yeah. it, half past six. Well, I suppose it would be seven o'clock now because we have our dinner at half six now. You know, so half six to seven would be the kind of the dinner time. And then it's telly time and it's just me and him on the couch. And I swear to you, I would not want anything else ever except to be there watching dead people in the snow. I call that time of night BRT, bra removal time. Yes. Oh, my God, completely. <laughs> if I've even put it on. Um, yeah. Like, yeah. And but you know when you've had to go somewhere. Yes, and you've got your makeup on. And, and it's all yeah. just, yeah. and then you start to dismantle the yes. person that you are. Yeah, yes. And I wear a nightdress like um, your man used to wear in Shits Creek, the dad. And I have knee socks. I mean, I look horrendous. <laughs> and as I say, usually I'm wearing food on the front of it. And I'm just underneath my blanket holding his hand. And that's all I want. Marianne Keys, thank you for comforting with me. Oh, thank you, Grace Dent. It's been a pleasure. It was lovely. This episode of Comfort Eating was produced by Jack Paramount. The series producer is Leia Green and the executive producer is Kathy Drysdale. Music and sound design is by Axel Cacoutier and this episode was mixed by Solomon King. If you like comfort eating, please leave us a review. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. And use the hashtag ComfortEatingPod to get in touch about the podcast or share your own comfort foods. This is The Guardian. 